Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, it is, it's a delightful thing, but it's also a very challenging thing to gather together as your people in worship and be reminded of who you are and what you have accomplished and what it is that we are a part of. It delights our hearts and our minds, and yet it, it challenges us because we realize that so much in our thinking, so much in our lives is, is out of sync it, with who we really are, what it is that you've accomplished. We find, as with the father of the demon-possessed boy, that we have to cry out and say, we believe, but help our unbelief. Father, we do wrestle and struggle in this life to truly be who you have made us to be in Christ Jesus. To put off that old self, to be made new in the spirit of our minds, to put on that new, renewed self that already has been created in you as we share in Christ a newness that accords with the righteousness and holiness of the truth. And I pray that we have gathered truly as your people with a sincere heart, seeking to worship, seeking to have our hearts and minds bowed down before you, And in that way, to be lifted up with a heavenly vision. I too pray, Father, that you would attend to this time of of instruction, of hearing, of, of thinking. And that you would do a mighty and fruitful work in each one here today. Meet each one according to his need minister to each according to the intent of your grace, that all would be grown up in all things into Christ who is the head. And so, Father, we plead for your leading by your spirit. We pray that he would cause Christ to truly be revealed in us by faith, not as a distant vision, but so near as to be understood as the one who is really the truth of who we are. Not only that he has his own fullness in the church, but that we find our own fullness in our full conformity to him. So help us in this time. Exhort us, 
encourage us. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Last week we considered this parenthesis that the Hebrews writer puts in the middle of his consideration of of, um, Abraham and his faith in in this catalog of the, the faithful who went before in the salvation history. And we saw as we looked at that, I I hope that we saw the forward-looking quality of faith. Faith has a uh, forward-looking fundamental quality to it. And we go back and even think about that working definition that the writer gave us that in in verse 1 of chapter 11, that faith actually brings into the present uh, that which lies in the future. It's the assurance of things hoped for. And it gives present, tangible, in, in a sense, tangible substance to that which our senses can't detect. It gives substance to that which is not seen. And in both of those ideas, it, it takes what lies out there and it pulls it in to where it becomes these things that lie ahead. It makes them be real and present in our experience. And in this particular context, this uh, parenthesis that the writer has, that thing that's out there, that thing that faith gives the substance and the presence to, is this thing of the inheritance that God has promised to his people. We know just in a general sense, and we talk about the idea of an inheritance, that, that an inheritance is a future commodity, When we talk about being an heir, it speaks to something that is out there that we yet await, that we expect to obtain. And so as an inheritance is a future commodity, it's also uh, the subject of our expectancy. It's something that we have an expectancy with respect to. Now that doesn't mean that that are looking to an inheritance necessarily in the generic sense is the same thing as faith. That sense of hopefulness or expectancy with that which is pledged to us isn't necessarily the same thing as faith in the biblical sense. But the point that I'm making is that even in a natural inheritance, if you have someone who has uh, set up a trust for you that you will inherit when you turn 21 or whatever it happens to be that thing that lies out there very much to the to the extent that it's something that you truly believe you're going to inherit it affects the way you think about and order your life in the present and inheritance affects the way it affects our present in view of our confidence in this thing that lies in the future And to the extent that the inheritance doesn't influence, and in many senses perhaps even direct the way we live in the present, it shows that we really don't anticipate with any real confidence obtaining that inheritance. It will affect the way we live in the present. And that's the case here as well in terms of what the writer sets in front of us. Let me just read that with you again, and I'll actually uh, pick this up in verse 8 and then read through the 16th verse. This is, again, set in the middle of of the passage in which the writer's dealing with Abraham and his faith. 
By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign place, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, a permanence, a city whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself being um, barren, received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, having considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, Abram, and him as good as dead at that, as many offspring, descendants as the stars of the heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear by that that they are seeking a homeland is the idea of their own. And indeed, if they'd been thinking of that place from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they seek a better homeland, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. He has prepared a city for them. As I said last time, this, the, the, the key question here, one of the key questions is, what is the referent of this uh, adjective all? All these, all these died in faith. And if you listen to last week's message, you saw that there are those who say, well, this is just the patriarchs because they died in faith, not having received the promise, which was the land of Canaan. But the very point that the writer is making is that Canaan was not that inheritance that they were ultimately looking for. And so not only Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't inherit the land of Canaan, but all of their descendants after them equally died without receiving what was promised. Even if they lived during the time of the glory days of Israel in David's uh, kingdom, when David's kingdom was presided over by Solomon, and you see in 1 Kings 4, you know, how the sons of Israel were as innumerable as the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore, and Solomon ruled over all the lands from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt to the Mediterranean Sea, all that Abrahamic language of fulfillment. And yet they still did not receive what was promised, the point being that the writer's making that Canaan was not that inheritance. And you come even to the end of the chapter and the writer makes the same sort of point if there's any question concerning that. He says all these, this whole list of people that he has named, all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us we upon whom the ends of the ages have come, so that apart from us, they could not be made perfect. They could, their completion, their obtainment of the inheritance would not happen until the fullness of the times. They would obtain the inheritance together with us. And the obvious 
point that he's making is that it was the messianic work, the triumph of the Messiah, that brought this inheritance to bear. And so they all died in faith without receiving that. The faithful in Israel, not just the patriarchs, the faithful all died without receiving what was promised because they were looking beyond Canaan. They recognized that the land of Canaan, the promised land, was a prefiguration of the true habitation that God was actually promising to Abraham. I mentioned last time that the heart, what made Canaan the promised land was not a a sacred piece of, of dirt, but the fact that it was the place where God dwelt. What made it the promised land was God's presence and the presence of his people with them. When he departed, it became ikavod, no glory. It didn't matter if the temple stood. It didn't matter if Jerusalem stood. As soon as the Lord was gone, it was no longer the promised land. The inheritance was about inhabitation, God dwelling together with his people. That was the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. And again, all of this is stuff that I dealt with last time. So what God was promising was ultimately a habitation in which there would be no relational distance and therefore no physical distance. Even when God dwelt in the midst of Israel in the land of Canaan, it was still at a distance. It was inside of of tent curtains. It was layers away from the people. And even when the temple was built, God's presence in the Holy of Holies wasn't accessible to the people of Israel. Even in their midst, he was at a distance. And this all again reflects back to the fall and the exile of the creation with man at the center, the exile of the creation from God, this principle of alienation and and enmity. And God's intent to end the enmity, to restore, to regather, to bring all things back to himself. That was the premise behind even the promise of the land of Canaan. This is the sense in which this habitation, this city that God promised, was both his own design and his own construct, It was his own intent and his own work in producing this habitation. Canaan could never accomplish that because it didn't solve the problem of exile, the exile from God that began in the garden. Well, all of this is clear from the context, but it raises the question, and this I asked you all last week to think about what really is this inheritance? As I said a few minutes ago, if it's true that our confidence in an inheritance drives the way we live in the present, then obviously we have to start by answering the question, what is the inheritance that we expect? What is this inheritance that is determining the way that we live in the present? If I don't understand what I have been, what has been set apart for me as an inheritance, if I don't understand the sense in which I'm an heir, then I can't rightly live in view of that inheritance. And I asked you all to think about that this week in terms of even the practical implications 
of what it is that the writer of Hebrews is saying here, because clearly he was writing these things to his readers to help them to rethink and, and in a sense, resituate their own hearts and minds and lives in the context of their own circumstance, their own struggles, their own difficulties. He told them these things, if you will, as an aid to their faithfulness. That they would not lose heart, that they would not fall away. And so it is with us as well. So it is with us as well. So all of the things that I've talked about so far are clear from the text, but still we have to answer the question, what is this inheritance? What is this heavenly city? What is this better homeland, this better country that the writer is referring to? What is this inheritance? Because that answer, like I said, is critically important to us conforming and living in view of that. Well, I I think I mentioned last time, um, I believe I did, that probably the most common way this has been understood, certainly since the Middle Ages, is that what the writer is talking about is heaven. And even the language perhaps seems to indicate that because he talks about a heavenly city, he talks about a city that God himself is the architect of, that God himself has constructed. Tradition itself, like I said, at least since the Middle Ages, the emphasis, the orientation of this thing of faith in Christ and salvation in Christ and life in Christ, it it has its orientation towards the inheritance of heaven. Basically, the preoccupation of the church since that time, both the Roman Catholic Church and also Protestantism coming out of it, was where do souls end up? Do they end up in heaven or do they end up in hell? And at the very least, there was the hope that that soul would enter into purgatory, which is a purgative circumstance. It was a situation of purging by which God would deal with this final adherence of of sinfulness to us so that we could be ready to have our final destiny in heaven itself. And this way of thinking is so characteristic of of Christianity since the Middle Ages that we often, we just assume that that's what the writer's talking about. He's saying that they wandered around in this land of Canaan because they knew what ultimately God had promised is one day when they died, they would go to heaven. And there would be the pearly gates and there would be the streets of gold and there would be, you know, their room in, 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 in their mansion in the house that God had built. All of this imagery, we see it in our, our hymnity. We see it in our traditions. We see it in so much of, of the ideas, the notions of Christianity, Protestant as well as Catholic. But as I mentioned last time, and and I say all the time, the only way that you can think that way is if you are really not familiar with Israel's scriptures and the way in which God builds the case for what he's doing and what this is all about and where this is all going. 
Even when we think about the gospel as, as a scheme by which people can get saved so they can go to heaven, and we think about Jesus going around and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that's how we tend to want to think about it. Jesus was going around telling people how they could get saved and go to heaven. Well, that message would have been utterly foreign and incomprehensible to his Israelite audience. They were, they were not thinking about dying and going to heaven. Because that's not what their scriptures teach. That's not the destiny that the scriptures set out. That's not the purpose and the plan, if we will, the end point, the goal of God in all of this work that has its focal point in the Messiah. It's not so that souls can go to heaven. And if you follow the Old Testament storyline from the time of the creation through the fall, through the way in which God works out this promise that ultimately comes to its, its, its point of realization in the Messiah, what Israel's scriptures show is that the human destiny, the destiny of human beings, is the consummating of human identity and vocation. The bringing to fullness of human identity and vocation in relation to God, but also in relation to his creation. That human destiny is inherently and inseparably connected with the creation and with its renewal. But in such a way that this, the realization, the obtainment of this human destiny is fundamental and absolutely essential to the creation's renewal. This is this is the hope that the Old Testament sets out, Israel's scriptures. And so we see even Paul the Jew in Romans 8 talking about this purpose of God. He says in Ephesians that the purpose of God is ultimately that all things in the heavens and the earth, the whole creation, would be summed up. It would come to its ultimacy and attain its true relationship with him in connection with Christ, the summing up of everything in the creation, the heavens and the earth in the Messiah. That's the goal towards which God is working. And in Romans 8, he says that the creation itself is groaning. It's waiting for the day when it will enjoy its own participation in the redemptive and restorative work of the Messiah. And Paul says, in fact, the creation is looking at the human race as it has its own hope out there. It's waiting, in his language, it's waiting for the manifesting of the sons of God. Because when the human race becomes what God created it to be, then the creation will enjoy its own restoration what Isaiah calls a new heavens and a new earth. Paul didn't innovate new ideas when he spoke about what has come in the Messiah. He simply had, as all of the early Jewish believers, had to rethink these ideas in the light of the Messiah itself, himself. 
Israel's eschatological hope, and that's a big word, but Israel's hope of what this destiny that God had appointed for them, what, what it was about to be Israel, why God had chosen them, why he'd set apart Abraham. What is God doing? Where is this going? What is our own destiny in God's purposes? Their hope, the inheritance of that the faithful were longing for, if we want to put it in terms that the writer of Hebrews is using, the inheritance for which the faithful in Israel waited and longed was this thing that I've mentioned many times in the past, the cholam haba in Hebrew, the coming age. And that coming age was what the prophets had spoken of as the time when Yahweh would himself return He would put an end to the exile of Israel and ultimately through Israel, the exile of the world, the exile of the creation by his own return, by his own great triumphal work of judgment, condemning and destroying all that opposed him. And in that way, bringing in cleansing and forgiveness and renewal, reestablishing his presence in the midst of his people and gathering in all of the families of the earth. This is throughout the prophets. That's the cholam haba, the coming age. Jews were not thinking about going off to heaven when they died. This was Yahweh's consummate kingdom, marked by his return, his judgment, his reign over all the earth through his messianic servant, the son of David, the Davidic king. Didn't we see this in Zechariah? This is all the prophets. The reason that we think that the destiny God has in mind is individual souls going off to heaven is because we don't know the Israelite story. We don't know what God has actually promised. And my point initially then is that that inheritance, Israel understood their inheritance. The faithful in Israel were looking for an inheritance that in a very real way was an earthly inheritance. Well, why does he call it a heavenly city? Because the heavenly quality of this earthly inheritance is in God's intent to merge together the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. The heavenly realm is the realm that God inhabits. The earthly realm is the realm of his creation in that sense. And to bring those two things together. To merge, the, to merge if you will, heaven and earth together. God's promise to make a new heavens and a new earth was his pledge to renew his creation and establish the intimacy that he intended with the creation from the beginning. Eden, the way the creation account shows the first creation is that Eden is a, it's God's sanctuary, it's God's garden dwelling place, and he has the man there with him. And that relationship is to now be the way in which the knowledge and the glory and the presence of God fills the earth. That's what Genesis 1 and 2 want us to understand. That was God's goal. 
Well, that's the way the Old Testament scriptures, that's the way Israel's scriptures build the case of what this inheritance is. Well, what about the New Testament scriptures? Do they go in a different way? Many people think they do. Okay, yeah, the Jews had this hope of, you know, an earthly inheritance, whatever. Um, We know that we go off to heaven. Well, in fact, the New Testament scriptures affirm the very same thing. They affirm that same intent of God, that same design of God, that God's creation, the whole creation, should be his sanctuary, such that, as Paul put it, God would be all in all. This is why the capstone of the New Testament is Revelation 21 and 22, John's vision. He doesn't say, and I looked and I saw souls flying off to heaven. He says, I looked and I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. Jerusalem representing the place where God dwells his city where he puts his name and the heavenly space comes and becomes part of the earthly space and as I said last time the angelic interpretation is now the dwelling of God is with men and that had its essential substantial fulfillment in Jesus himself if we believe in the doctrine of incarnation we believe that in Jesus in the first instance heaven and earth were conjoined in him the word became flesh the word was with god the word was god the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. It's the language of the temple and the tabernacle. He tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. Not the glory of the Shekinah, the Shekinah in the temple, but the glory of God that is in the face of Christ. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only begotten son, has interpreted him, exegeted him, made him known. And this idea of Jesus as the true dwelling place of God, as we saw in John's gospel, is a central theme of John's gospel. Right? The idea of the sanctuary as the place where God dwells, where heaven and earth come together, that becomes yes and amen in the Messiah. Jesus is that place. And so also all who share in him. This is why Paul can say that we have been raised up and are seated in the heavenly realm in Jesus. You say, well, I'm not in heaven, I'm on the earth. What is he talking about? He must be talking about when I die. No, he's saying that when we are sharers in the Messiah, we now inhabit as earthly beings the heavenly realm just as Jesus is himself the conjunction of heaven and earth. And so as we are sharers in him, we are built into this dwelling of God in the spirit. Jesus is both the agent and the essential substance and fruit of God's design to bring together heaven and earth. Remember even Jesus, the Lord's prayer, we pray it all the time. But it's not a mantra, it's not a magic formula like praying the rosary. Jesus' disciples said, Lord, if you're the Messiah, help us, teach us what it is to pray. All these things are changing in our thinking. This is, you know, this is very different stuff. 
You as the Messiah and the way you're, you are and what you're teaching, help us to pray. Help us to understand how to interact with the Father. This is how you ought to pray. Our Father who's in heaven, let your name be holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. To align ourselves with God's mind and to seek him in that way is to recognize his intent to merge together his space and the earthly space. As I said last time, it's that phrase, sacred space, that the whole creation would become the dwelling of God. Or in Paul's way of putting it, when this is all done, God will be all in all, the summing up of everything in the heavens and the earth in the Messiah. So future inheritance directs present life. There's just kind of a generic principle. Well, what is this? If this is the inheritance, the renewal of the creation, how does that affect the way that we ought to live? This is the practical implication of this. What does it mean to live in view of that inheritance? Well, obviously, as I said, we have to first understand what this inheritance is. That inheritance and understanding, it is actually the ground of our faithfulness. So what God has actually promised, the inheritance he's promised to his children, is very much a natural earthly one. Now, that obviously needs some sorting out because somebody might hear that and say, oh, well, you know, just the way things are, that's, that's it. No. But we tend to think, again, that God's design is that all of this that we know and experience, all of this that surrounds us is all going away. And our spirits are just going to fly off to a weird place called heaven. I was saying to a person a couple weeks ago, I personally think that this, this connection that we have as God's image children, the function, our identity and vocation in his purposes is so tightly bound to the creation as we know it, that that's part of the reason why the whole issue of death is so frightening and scary to us, and even undesirable. People don't want to leave this world. As bad as it can be, they, this is a good world, right? It's be, there's beauty in it. There's goodness in it. The idea of, of our spirits just flying off to some nebulous, disembodied place and floating around forever, we're like, I, that doesn't really, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why would I want that? Well, because that's heaven. The alternative is hell. You don't want to go to hell. Don't you want to be in that place? Yeah, but it's weird. It doesn't suit with... with, You see what I'm getting at? There's something written into our very beings that causes us to hold on to, to see and hold on to an essential connection with this creation that we know, this world, this earth, this natural realm that God has created. And the idea of flying off and disembodied, floating around in some weird place forever, just it's, it's a strange idea. 
And I'm not saying that the Bible paints those pictures, but that's very much a part of Christian tradition. We're going off to this place called heaven. Won't it be wonderful? And even when we try to think about it, we think about it in natural terms. Like I said, pearly gates, streets of gold, my own mansion that I'm living in. I can fish, I can ski. I can... It's all very natural in the way we conceive of it. But the inheritance that God has promised is very much a natural earthly one. And all of these things that we're talking about really rebuke and and oppose that idea that our destiny is in heaven, as we tend to think of heaven. This understanding is crucial, as I said, to our practice as well as our doctrine, because the inheritance determines the way we live in the present. Where this is going, where I'm going, will determine how I am now, right? It should. It should. So this is eminently practical. This isn't just a theological idea to get sorted out in our heads. And that's what the writer is getting at. When you understand the inheritance, it will secure and drive, it will deeply affect the way that you live in the present. And in fact, I would argue that it's impossible for a person to live a faithful life if he doesn't get this inheritance right. It's impossible. We all want to be faithful. You know, God wants me to be faithful. I want to be faithful. What does it look like to be faithful? If we don't understand, if, if the inheritance drives our life in the present, and faithfulness is about our life in the present, then we can't be faithful if we don't get this idea of the inheritance right. How can you be faithful when your faith and your hope are directed towards something that God neither intends nor promised? If our hope is going off to heaven when we die, that's not what God intends or promises. And I'm not saying that at the moment of death, when our body goes in the ground, that our spirit doesn't go to be with the Lord. But that's an intermediate state. That's a, a time of longing, a time of groaning, a time of incompletion. That's not the end point. It's another step towards the end point. The end point is the renewal of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. A human community manifesting God's life, God's presence, God's lordship over the works of his hands. How can we be faithful when our faithfulness is tied to something that doesn't even connect with what God is about or what he's doing or what he's promised? Because faithfulness involves owning what God himself owns. Faithfulness involves owning what God himself owns. Faithfulness is binding our perspective, our priorities, our practice to the God who actually is, the God who has spoken, the God who has promised, the God who has acted, the God in whom all of this becomes yes and amen in Jesus himself. Faithfulness involves owning the truth as it is in Jesus the Messiah. Not just a few factoids about him. Oh, he was sinless. He was born of a virgin. He was, you know, not a bunch of factoids, but the truth of who he actually is. 
as the one in whom all of the promises of God, the truth of God, the truth of the creation, the truth of humanness, all of those things are yes and amen in him. And I know that's a big idea, but that's what it means to own Jesus as the one in whom God is yes and amen. So we have to start by discerning the inheritance rightly. And then when we discern it, now we can begin to relate to it in terms of this thing of faithfulness. And and to put it simply, faithfulness is co-laboring with God according to his purposes and the work he is doing. Remember the prophet Amos, the, the question was asked, can two walk together except they be agreed? And even if you're, you know, in a mathematical way, ge- geometric way, even if you're off by one, 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 you know, point zero, 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 one degree over time and space, there's this, right? There's a diverging. To walk together indefinitely, permanently, without deviating, there must be agreement. Faithfulness, then, is agreeing with God. It's doing what God is doing. When Jesus said, I always do what pleases my Father, I do his work, he wasn't saying, okay, he gave me these commandments and told me to go do these things. He's saying that when you see me living, speaking, walking, teaching, you see the mind and the will and the work of the Father worked out in me. Faithfulness is co-laboring with God, doing what he's doing, joining ourselves to his purposes and his work. And anything else, saints, anything else, however pious, however intellectual, however conscientious, however commendable, Anything else other than co-laboring with God according to his purpose and his work is actually unbelief. It's us working at cross-purposes with God. This is how important it is for us to understand our inheritance. What God has actually intended for his creation, what he's actually doing, where this is actually going. And if we think that the goal is to be a good person or to, you know, um, own truly my salvation in Jesus so I'm ready to go off to heaven, we're at cross purposes with what God is doing. And it's actually unbelief. We're working with a vision and a goal that are not God's. Well, based on all that I've said, that means that our faithfulness as God's people necessarily involves a certain kind of earthly mindedness, doesn't it? If God's purpose is an earthly thing or a a creational thing, then to be about his purposes, it requires a certain kind of earthly mindedness. And I say certain kind of earthly mindedness. Because I'm not at all saying, yeah, just go, just go be like the rest of the world. Just go be a worldling and you know, eat, drink, and be merry. I'm not saying that. 
But it means that we're to have our gaze fixed on the inheritance of the homeland that God has actually intended and towards which he is working. And that means that we have our gaze and our activity oriented in an informed and an engaged in a purposeful way with life in this world. In view of the ordained destiny that God has for this world, as opposed to looking to fly off in our spirit to a place called heaven which I've never personally known any Christians who give a whole lot of thought to that because it's just too different and too weird and they don't know what to make of it. They just know that's a good outcome, is to go to heaven. Faithfulness, then, is a profoundly ironic enterprise. Irony is when something is actually very different than what you would expect or what it seems to be. Ironic doesn't mean it's just strange or different or weird. It, It technically means where something is actually the opposite or very different than what it would seem to be or be expected to be. Faithfulness is ironic in this sense. It is radically and entirely God centered. More precisely, Christ-centered. Faithfulness is radically and entirely Christ-centered. And yet, it is very much concerned with this world and our lives in this world. It ought to be obvious on the face of it, if really the issue was just getting saved and going off to heaven, then, then why does God keep us around here? other than to get other people's souls saved so they can fly off to heaven. Why are we here? What's the purpose of our life as believers? If it's just really about going to heaven, getting saved and going to heaven, why are we here? So here's my summary, and then I want to draw out three implications of this that I think are very practical. Christian faithfulness is faithfulness to the actual vocation, to to who we are in Christ, what it means to be sharers in the life of Christ, and the purpose for which God has made us sharers in Christ, made us to be true image children in Jesus. Why has God done that? Under what end? What's the purpose? Our faithfulness is our faithfulness to that, our conformity to that vocation. And that vocation is to co-labor with God in the power and leading of the Spirit in his project of creational renewal. That's why he leaves us here when we get saved. And that involves proclaiming and living out the reality of this renewal, this new creation that has come in Jesus, that has its essential substance in Jesus, and which we are sharers in as sharers in him. And our labors and our energies and our intentions directed towards the fullness of that renewing project of God. That's what it is for us to be faithful. So as I said, I like to just draw out what I think are three obvious implications. Maybe we don't think about them, maybe we do. But the first thing that this does is it exposes the error 
And more, the, more than just an error, the actual unfaithfulness of retreating from the world. Or of, of really having our hearts and our minds fixed on escaping from the world. I can't wait till I die and go to heaven. I can't wait till the rapture comes. You know, for much of American contemporary Christianity, certainly on the dispensational side, the idea is, you know, we're getting close to the time when we're going to get raptured out of here. And then the manure is going to hit the fan and the whole planet, you know, it's just going to be this, 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 this calamity of, of fire and nuclear holocaust. And, you know, all hell's going to break loose. But we get to be up in heaven, you know, at the meal of the, the lamb looking down at it like watching a movie or something while all of this is happening on the earth. But we get out of it. This kind of escapism or hunkering down. Just keep your kids at home. Don't go out. You know, don't get involved in this. Don't do this. Just hunker down. Hunker down until you can leave this world. That's unfaithfulness. It equally, this understanding of our inheritance, equally delegitimizes another common Christian preoccupation, which is this notion of soul winning as we understand that. And we've all seen it. We've all been there. Decades ago, I went through um, D. James Kennedy's evangelism explosion course for church visitation. You go out on Tuesday night, you knock on the door, ding dong. Hi, I'm here from such and such. Let me ask you a question. If you were to die tonight and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? That's the way you begin doing evangelism with evangelism explosion. And I'm not trying to be hypercritical, but I'm saying the goal, the mindset behind that is I want to get these people saved. I want their soul to be saved so that they can go to heaven. It's soul winning. And we put our energy into soul winning. The the issue is not winning souls. The issue is renewing of a human community that has individuals in it. But our soul is nothing without our body because we are body and spirit, right? It's not soul winning. The soul is not the true us. The soul and the body are the true us. And the truth is to do this thing of soul winning so people can go to heaven when they die misses. It lies against the truth that if we're in Christ, we already inhabit the heavenly realm in him. We don't go off to heaven. We already are seated in that realm. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. What is he saying? We already inhabit the realm that God inhabits as sharers in God's own life in the Messiah. As sharers in Jesus' resurrection, we already inhabit that realm. And we are living, breathing evidence of God's own intent to bring heaven and earth together, as I said. Because we walk around on this earth, but we are beings who inhabit the heavenly realm in the sense that we are sharers in the very life of God. 
We're not going off to heaven. Heaven is simply God's space, the realm that he inhabits. And it's just as much here as the world that we know. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. God isn't off in a place called heaven. He fills his creation. We just, we're not sensorily aware of it. But the merging together of God's space and our space, we are living, breathing evidence of that. That creational renewal in the conjoining of that God's space and the creation space in the Messiah, that is the good news of the gospel. And yes, that renewal implies and includes forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation and all of these ideas that we attach to Jesus' atoning work. It does include those things. But the goal is, again, not simply to get forgiven so I can go off to heaven. The work of Jesus is to renew the whole created order. It's a universal atonement in that sense. It applies to the whole created order. So Christians proclaim the gospel. They are faithful to the inheritance that they live in view of. They proclaim the gospel when they testify by the manifestation of their new creational life when they testify in that way of the creation's renewal in Jesus and the truth of his own transformative lordship over it. They don't proclaim the gospel when they try to explain to people how they can go to heaven. So the unfaithfulness of retreating from this world, of seeking and waiting to escape from this world... Secondly, this idea of soul winning as the, voca- or the mission that God has chartered us with. And then thirdly, and related very tightly to the first thing, is the error and the unfaithfulness of viewing this world as appointed for destruction. You say, well, what about 2 Peter 3? Doesn't he say, you know, God's going to burn all this up and it's all going to go away? Well, really, I think when you, if you believe that's what Peter's saying, then you set him against Israel's scriptures. You set him against Paul, who says that God's purpose is the renewing of this creation, not its destruction, not its burning up. And I think if you look at what Peter's actually saying, if you look at his language very carefully, and I'll just pick one verse out of it, verse 10. But here's what he's saying. The fire that God has laid in store for the world is a fire that has a cleansing and a purging, a restorative work, not an annihilating, destroying work. In other words, fire is a symbol of purging and cleansing, not destruction. So Peter says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in which the present heavens will come to their end. They will attain their own appointed destiny and the elemental things, not the elements of hydrogen, carbon, helium, chromium, not the elements in the periodic table, the elemental things, the stoicheia, what Paul talks about, are, you know, a world that's defined according to elemental ways of being human. Paul says, if you've been raised up in Christ, don't conform to the elemental things of this world the way it thinks, the way it understands, the way it perceives, the way it operates. 
That's the elemental idea that Peter's getting at. The elemental things, the principles and patterns of this present world will be consumed in the fire of God's final judgment and the earth and its works will be fully disclosed and dealt with. That's what he's really saying. And thus we have the hope of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Not destroy this and start over from scratch, but the renewing of this to be what he intended all along. And all we have to do, saints, is look at our own renewal. Does God annihilate you and start over and make a new you from scratch? What is our new creation in the Messiah? Isn't it the renewing and the perfecting of the person that already exists that was created? God's creation is very good. The problem is the human corruption and the effects of the fall. This is Romans 8. God's goal is not to destroy and get rid of his creation. His creation's very good. It's to see it also share in the redemption and the renewal that are in Jesus. So, saints, here's my closing. If we would be faithful, we have to devote ourselves to testifying in all things and at all times to the reality of new creation in Jesus and God's intent to renew all things in him. Well, how do we bear that testimony? Well, first, it's got to go beyond religion and morality and ethics and Christianity in the, you know, in the religious sense. Those are things of the old creation, Religion, morality, ethics, that's all a part of the old creation. As I've said before, morality and ethics deal with the issue of what is and what ought to be. In God's renewal, there is no ought to be, there is is, right? So to the extent that we're not fully conformed to Christ, there is still this issue uh, of, of the oughtness of things, But ultimately, the world operates according to morality and ethics and religion. That's not not what this new creation is about. This is the testimony of a new kind of human existence within a new human community. An existence that confounds and challenges the prevailing order because it involves a new perspective and a new orientation in living life and engaging the world. This is what Jesus meant when he said, if you would come after me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. What did Jesus' cross represent? It represented his own statement against and condemnation of and crucifixion of this false way of being human. And for us to take up our cross is to agree with him. And therefore manifest in the world, as I said, a different kind of human existence grounded in a new kind of human community that confounds and confronts the world and draws its confusion and its ire, its displeasure, because we're bringing to bear a new orientation in living life. That's why Paul can say, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We may not go to jail, we may not be beaten, but when you live a different kind of life in this world with a different perspective, 
Not doing any one thing in particular, just living as a different sort of human being in, in this world. It has a confounding, challenging, confronting quality to it. So this faithfulness, is this testimony that we bear, is nothing more than living out this new life that is ours in Jesus. What Paul would call faith working through love. See, when we talk about, I want to be faithful to God, we start thinking about, what's the laundry list? What are those things I need to do to be faithful? All that it is to be faithful is to just live in a new way, in your circumstance, in your challenges. And this very much comes to the forefront, again, in Paul's epistles. Faith working through love. Faithfulness that is in our personal lives, in our relationships, in our work, our citizenship, our stewardship of God's world, our orientation, priorities, expectations, goals. It's not doing any one thing. It's simply living with a new mind and a new perspective in the life that God has given to us. Well, there's a lot more that I could say, and there's a lot of of scripture that I I would encourage you to read. But just to mention some things, if you got a pen and you want to write these things down, look at what Paul deals with in Romans 12 through 15. All these things that I've spoken about, of this thing of faith working through love, a new kind of human existence in the context of a new human community as it affects our personal lives, our relationships, work, our citizenship, stewardship, of this world that God has given to us and entrusted to us, of the orientation, priorities, expectations, goals that we have in life. Look at Paul's treatment in the book of Philemon. Philemon, you've got to think about your slave in a new way. Onesimus, you've got to think about your master in a new way. Philippians 2 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 Peter 2 is another very good passage, you know, of, of, of the full-orbed quality of this thing of faithfulness. But for the sake of our meditation today, I'd like to just read a couple passages with you. And, and, and I want you to think about these things, passages that we're very familiar with, perhaps, but I want you to think about them through the lens of what we've been talking about. What really is the inheritance that God has marked out for us? What does it mean to live faithfully in the light of this destiny of which we are a part, God's destiny for his creation and our place in it? And what is it to testify of that good news in a faithful way? Well, the first is um, Colossians chapter 3. Again, a very, and I won't read the whole thing, but and then I want to read a little bit from Titus. One, Paul's instruction to just a community of believers, the other, an instruction to a certain man, and instructing Titus of how to instruct those that he's caring for. But listen to what Paul says, and then we'll just go into our time of meditation. I won't even pray. Well, I just want you to think about these things. Paul says, if then you have been raised up with Christ. And all of what that means in terms of the things we've been talking about. Then keep seeking what's above. Not spatially, but 
this new inhabitation in God's realm. Keep seeking what is above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on those things, not the things that are your earthly life as you know it. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul pointing to this inheritance that is to come. And therefore, consider your members which are on this earth, your earthly existence, as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which all of which, but certainly the latter, amounts to idolatry. That's what God has saved us from, the fundamental idolatry of ourselves. For it's on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming. And in these things you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its practices, you put on the new self that is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You're being renewed in Christ to become true image children. Unto the destiny that God has for you to be his priests and kings, ruling in his name and with his mind and and, in his authority over the works of his hands. This is a renewal in which there is no Greek or Jew. This is huge in the ancient world. A very stratified world where people fit in their pecking order. He says, all that's gone. There isn't a Jew or Greek. There isn't circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all and is in all. The old ways that you used to think about one another and relate to one another, all of that is gone in the Messiah. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, as the Lord forgave you, so should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, faith working through love, or faithfulness that is expressed in self-giving love. And let Christ's peace rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with gratitude in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word and deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That's what faithfulness looks like. And then Titus. Paul tells Titus, you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound instruction. That the older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, not teach, but rather teaching what is good, instructing with their lives and their practices, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children 
to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible, wise-minded. In all things, you show yourself to be an example of good deeds, the deeds that are consistent with new creation, with a new way of being human in the Messiah. Purity in your teaching, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent, and they will oppose you, but that the opponent may be put to shame, really having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What is that grace of God? It's the Messiah himself and what God has done in him. And that grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, the things that conform to the stoicheia, the principles and patterns of this world, whether they're moral, immoral, whatever, and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every contrary deed, lawless in the sense of contrary to the mind and the purpose and the truth of God, and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds, the kinds of deeds we're talking about. These things, Titus, speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's human existence as we've known it. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared in the, in the person of the Messiah, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in some apparent righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration, newness of life and renewing in the Holy Spirit, who he poured out upon us richly through Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, Titus, instruct in this way, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in the kinds of deeds that testify to the new creation in the Messiah, a new way, a new kind of human existence. These things are good and profitable for men. That's what faithfulness looks like. That's what it's about. Well, let's think on these things for a minute, and then we'll come to the, come to the table.